Welcome everyone to the Genetics Podcast. I'm really excited to be here today with Dr. Kaya Vonsik, the Chief Science Officer and Co-Founder of Variant Bio. Variant Bio is a really exciting new biotech drug discovery company that's using human genetic data to discover new drugs. And I'm really excited to be here today. So thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, thank you for having me. I am very excited to talk about the, the company too. Great. What I really like about Variant Bio is it's not only got an amazing scientific team and expertise, but also brings a really human element to what they do. They've recently announced an exciting new benefit sharing program where the company is going to share revenue back with participants whose genomic data is, is powering their studies and what they're going to do. And we will get into that. So I wonder, Kai, if you could just start by telling us about Variant Bio and, and how you and your co-founders decided to come together and start the company. Yeah, so um, so as you already mentioned, Variant Bio is just in, in simple terms, we use genetics, we use genetic data to identify novel therapeutic targets. Um, and more specifically, what we're trying to do is work with populations around the world that have a specific genetic architecture that is architecture that allows for rare variants to rise to high uh, frequency. And we're also looking for, for groups who are outliers for um, different traits of medical relevance. Um, and we're hoping that by working with this specific architecture and by finding groups that are outlier for medically relevant traits, we can identify genetic variants that rose to high frequency within those populations that are associated with those traits uh, and see if those genetic variants can be used for the purpose of developing uh, new therapeutics. So the goal in general for us is to develop drugs. Uh, so we will, as a company, go through a transition. We started as more of, of a genomics data collection, data analysis company. But uh, hopefully uh, in the nearest future, you'll see us kind of taking a step towards becoming more of a, of a biotech slash, slash pharma company uh, one day. So the goal is to develop drugs internally or uh, in partnerships with, with pharma companies. Great. I, I wonder if you could just maybe give a quick example of one one or more examples where genetics has contributed to drug development, either either a historical example or, or one that you all are working on or, or both. To if, if I don't know if you're able to talk about the ones that you're working on. I think there are some that you have talked about publicly. Yeah, I, can, I fortunately I can't uh, can't mention any of, of our findings or the or those um any of the examples that we're we're working on because we we're in the process of validating some some of these, but there are uh, um, there are a bunch of um, examples that are pretty good. So some of my favorite examples, and they came they, they stem from identifying individuals who are uh, who are outliers. Are uh, for instance PCSK9 and the PCSK9 inhibitors, right? So that is a very famous story that every geneticist knows. Um, identifying individuals with extremely low LDL cholesterol levels um, and identifying the individuals who are knockouts in the PC um, in the PC. SK9 gene that led to uh, a number of different companies to developing antibodies against PCSK9, a very uh, successful cholesterol-lowering therapy. Um, the other one that we like to, to talk about is the individuals with dense bones. So there's been this case of, um, and I hope I get the story right, of somebody who has survived a very terrible motorcycle accident, ended up uh, ended up in the ER, and all the doctors were really confused, like why uh, why are all the bones intact? So the individual only has soft tissue damage, but the but the bones are intact, and they've detected that uh, this this person has bones that are I think like nine times denser uh, wow. on average, um, and he. he 
he had no idea about it. The only thing that he's noticed about himself that was was different is that he never really learned how to swim. He would sink because his bones were just so so dense. That was the kind of only side effect of having those those dense dense bones, and that has led to identification of a of a mutation in this uh, gene called LRP5 um, and discovery of the sclerostin uh, protein sclerostin pathway and development of this drug by Amgen that I think was approved in 2019 called called Evenity for individuals with osteoporosis. Great, that's really helpful. And and so you mentioned you need two things: you need rare variants of of high effect and populations where they've risen to to some reasonable frequency so that you can find find enough people to, to study, I suppose. How do you go about doing that and, and picking where you focus or finding these populations? So this is really hard. So uh, part of my job in the, in the company is really deciding like strategically which phenotypes we will go after because uh, what we're focusing on is in general, we're trying to be as opportunistic as possible because we think like fascinating genetic findings can really come from, from any direction. So what we're focusing on is, is, I guess, three things. So one would be working with groups that show adaptation uh, that we think can be medically relevant. And by adaptation, I mean show some evidence of um, maybe, you know, adapting to, to their environment. Maybe it can be like resistance to hypoxia. So we can imagine populations that live at high altitudes or populations that have, um, that are divers that can stay underwater for a long period of time. Uh, groups that have adapted to cold or, or high temperatures. So maybe you know, people who live in the Danakil Depression in Ethiopia, very uh, environment with very high temperatures or cold, maybe Southern Patagonia. Uh, adaptation to certain toxins. There's evidence of, of a number of different groups adapting to like high arsenic levels in drinking water, adaptations to infectious disease or diets. Um, one of my one of my um, favorite examples are the Greenlandic Inuit that um, you know, they have lived for a really long time in a, in a pretty a pretty extreme environment of, of the Arctic that um, includes very low low temperatures but also a diet that's extremely rich in fatty acids so so they eat a lot of uh, I mean at least they used to um, eat a lot of uh, seal fat, a lot of whale um, whale blubber. And a, there's been this, I think in 2015, there's been this uh, really incredible paper from the Rasmus Nielsen's lab um, kind of showing that there's evidence in, in their genomes um, that they, there's, a, there's a number of uh, modifications in their fat metabolism, metabolism genes that allowed them to adapt the, in those diets really rich in um, polyunsaturated fatty acids. And um, that really reduced their risk of developing cardiovascular disease uh, that is normally associated with this diet. Um, and because the variants rose to a very high frequency, it was very easily to detect them in that specific uh, population. So um, that discovery that was very relevant was made with um, a relatively small number of, of individuals who were recruited for the study. So that's a couple thousand versus uh, usually you need hundreds of thousands of individuals to make you know, significant to make significant associations. Um, so we really like, so this is why we kind of really like working with those populations um, that show adaptation, that lived in isolation, that went through a genetic bottleneck, uh, because it allows us to do uh, studies on a budget. So a few thousand versus hundreds of thousands of individuals. Um, so adaptation is one thing, but um, there's also other other types of outliers we're focusing on. And, and some of these will be uh, epidemiological outliers for a number of different diseases. 
So we're looking at places that maybe have a very high or a very low disease frequency, um, different age of onset for disease, a different disease progression. So anything that's kind of epidemiologically different about this disease, uh, where we believe that this is not due to environmental reasons, but this, this is due to, to genetic reasons. And we always, uh, when we do that, we also take the genetic ar architecture into consideration. So we'll also do this in populations um, that are founder populations, populations that went through some type of you know, genetic bottleneck that have high levels of consanguinity of any other genetic structure that we um, that we think could lead to us being able to identify uh, those genetic variants more easily. Uh, and then the last thing is what, I, what I've mentioned is working with individual outliers. That's really the toughest. Uh, the toughest uh, uh, kind of task because it's really hard to identify them. So in order to identify them, we work with, um, you kind of have to work with anybody who has access to a lot of data about large groups of people. So you can work with hospitals or you can work with biobanks where you can identify those outliers using, um, using available data. That's really helpful to have those three groups. I'd love to maybe just dive into each of those in, in turn. So with the first group, which is people who have adaptations, um, I can imagine there are a lot of adaptations that might on the surface not have much to do with a, a potentially you know, medical trait or something you all could, could create a, a drug to help treat. How do you determine which adaptations are? Because I imagine there are some where there's, there's actually something lurking below the surface, like this, this Inuit example that you gave. There's probably a lot of insights in there in, in terms of type 2 diabetes or obesity targets in the general population. How, how do you go about that as a team to, to identify what is an adaptation that's a, a interesting curiosity and, and what is something that's a, a kind of medically useful piece of data? It's really hard. You really have to use your imagination because you, you can't tell ahead of time, right? But you can you can kind of try to extrapolate extrapolate that maybe adaptation that has something to do with resistance to hypoxia can be useful for treating something like COPD for people who need uh, respiratory assistance. So I think a lot of it is kind of just like trying to take the next step and trying to decide what kind of organs could be affected because of this adaptation. So when you think about individuals who have adapted to living in areas where it's extremely hot, um, it can be, for instance, a nomadic population that drinks very little water. You start wondering, how is that possible? What kind of organs could have adapted to that? Maybe kidneys, maybe they have extremely efficient you know, kidneys at filtration. Um, so you know, th th this is this is kind of how we, this is really how we how we go about it, um, and then you use this this idea that you have to do efficient phenotyping to try to say okay, well now if we're going to work with this group, we should measure some kidney related phenotypes and see if this hypothesis makes sense because it might be due to some changes in their circulatory system. It might be something uh, related to some skin adaptation that's more resistant to evaporation. So it can be a lot of different things, but um, you know, we have a, um, we are very focused on kidney disease. It's one of uh, our areas of, of interest. Um, so in, in this case, we would try to do as many kidney related measurements as we can. Interesting. And, and then following on to the second group, I imagine from where I sit, one of the big challenges there would be what, what you suggested, which is how does the environment interplay with genetic bottlenecks and, and other things? I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about how you figure out whether something is a genuinely interesting you know, genetic artifact that you can go after. I'm, I'm thinking of, for example, the the prevalence of Parkinson's disease in people of Ashkenazi Jewish or North African ancestry, or there's a number of Finnish heritage diseases, but beyond the 
the ones that you know people like me kind of know off the top of their head or are there, are there tricks or ways that you can use the data to determine whether there's something genetically going on in a population versus some environmental difference yeah you can you know you have to try to inform your, yourself as much as you can by uh, by looking at any type of statistically available epidemiological data it will be available in some places it won't be in some but then uh, talking to doctors and kind of like seeing how the how the diagnosis was was done on the patients. Um, so, for instance, certain things uh, become certain things are are fairly obvious when it comes to things like, for instance, kidney disease. You can start asking very specific questions. Okay, one one thing is like what proportion of the population you know has kidney disease? Then what's the age of onset of kidney disease? Then what's the what's the speed of progression? And when you see that there's a specific group, and you can see that for instance, sense um, when it comes to uh, populations in the Pacific Islands, there's a number of different groups there that have increased progression of kidney disease that uh, have earlier age of onset. Um, and this is this doesn't seem to be due to you know different diets. It just seems that if you get kidney disease, if you have certain ancestry, you progress just much faster than than you have than when you have a, a different um, ancestry. So we try to you know correct for things like diets or uh, or maybe well, kidney disease is complicated because a lot of things can lead to it so you know infectious disease that's that's present in in the area but usually um you just can compare to other populations that live in similar environmental conditions and see like well if it looks very different for this group with different ancestry uh, then there that might be a pointer to there might be some genetic predisposition but it's you know it's you use you use the available data. Sometimes you're right, sometimes you're wrong, and sometimes you just take a risk. Yeah, and then with the with the final group, these outlier individuals, I think you mentioned you know, biobanks, other large scale sources of data. What are you looking for there? I think the motorcycle example is a really evocative anecdote, and um, but there's almost any number of you know the, the, any number of these stories that you could kind of pursue, and it's really hard to know when when you're going to come up with a genetic finding or not. I, I, how do you figure out what to follow and what to not? Is is it, again, through this lens of the therapeutic areas that you're focused on that allows you to, to narrow it down to some extent? Yeah, so it is through the lens of the therapeutic areas. So we can we can do it. Um, and just, just to, to mention the therapeutic areas that, that we're interested in, we're really interested in, in generally areas of unmet medical needs. So we are interested in autoimmune disorders. We're interested in kidney disorders. We're interested in neuromuscular and neurodegenerative disorders. We just think there's just um, targets, like novel genetic targets are, are really lacking in those areas. We are also um, working with some metabolic disorders just because uh, the availability of, of data. Uh, so you can find, usually when you, you know, start looking at, at disease-related data from from a new new country. Uh, a lot of it is around diabetes um, and around other other types of, of metabolic disorders. But you can, in terms of trying to identify individuals, there's two ways you can do it. So you can have just like a purely data-driven approach where there's a biobank that has collected a ton of different measurements. Those are just numerical measurements uh, and you just plot them and look at the distribution and just 
you know, you ask yourself a couple of questions like, well, is the distribution in the population similar to other populations or is maybe the, like the entire distribution shifted in this population versus others? Because this way you might have a population based outlier. Uh, and then you kind of look at the ends of the spectrum and see how many people are there with um, extremely outlying measurements. And then you try to, you know, ask yourself questions like, why why would they be outliers? Is it a measurement error? Can these individuals be recontacted? Obviously, we try to work with, with, um, with collaborators where that is possible. Could it be due to some other underlying conditions that they have? Um, and you trying to try trying to trying to go through a set of these questions with obviously experts in the field with, with MDs who will tell you what exactly you need to understand to decide whether this is a really outlying measurement or whether um, or whether this might be just because a person is taking a specific medication. So that's the way to do this. The other way to, to really do it is to um, just have a set of criteria that you give to the hospital and say, we have a collaboration. So whenever you... Um, stumble upon a patient with like this set of criteria, we'd like to recruit this patient for, for a specific study. So that you can do in places where those databases don't exist or they're too small, you know, to identify individual outliers, um, you you don't also don't want one outlier. You want ideally like, I don't know, 500 of them, right? So you need a really, really large database to be, to be um, able to identify those and those don't really exist um, or, a few of them do, but, but they're not very, very common. Um, so, yeah, the other option is just you define your criteria and tell your partner once you find a person like that, um, please get back to me. Let us know. <laughs> yeah. What happens when, if we take the kind of individual outlier case, what would you all look to do if you're able to, to identify a group of people that meet a certain criteria? What what kind of tests are you, you know, would you wanting to be performing in addition to, to genetic sequencing, if you've already, if they already have been sequenced or if you already have that, that data. So that really depends on so the individuals have been sequenced and we you know, identify a, some gene of interest where it seems that all the individuals have like a rare variant in some gene of interest. We um, would want the next steps would be to do a validation um, and for that, depending, it really depends on how much you know about this gene, uh, because obviously you form a hypothesis of what's going on and what what's wrong. Um, and you can do the validation either in just like purely laboratory experimental setup where you, you know, you do a set of basic, basic experiments. But um, in many cases, you might want to uh, re-contact uh, the individuals and do additional uh, measurements. But that really will be kind of case, case by case. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and across these three groups, how many projects would you all be pursuing at a single time? The way you've described it, it, it seems to me like there's almost an endless number of routes you could go down. And there's probably a real discipline to saying for the next two years, we're going to focus on 10 of these or 20 of these. How, how roughly how many are you able to, to balance at once given the stage the company's at? You're right. It's very, very tough to say no to some of them. Uh, and there's just a lot of, of potentially very interesting projects out there. We are the individual players, as I said, are very difficult to find. So a large majority of what we're working on is uh, working with populations with adaptation or with uh, disease related epidemiological uh, outliers. So at this point, we have 
I think we have 17 projects at very different stages of, of execution. So some of them you know, we're sequencing samples, some of them we are done analyzing data, and some of them, you know, we're going through all the very early stages of IRB approval design, uh, community consultation. So um, so some of them will, will happen and some of them might not happen because uh, of a variety of reasons. Great. If we were to focus on one of these um groups with the uh, with adaptations and if you could kind of talk me through the whole process from beginning to end i think that would be really interesting from you know when hypothesis and you start to engage with the community all the way through to to potential novel drug target and and eventually drug i think that would be really really interesting for people who have maybe worked on only one part of this process to to understand what the whole thing looks like Okay, so let me try because it is different. You know, the beauty of us being a startup is that we can kind of modify our approach with with every different group. So it will be it will be very different with with different groups. But let me try to let me try to generalize. Initially, you have to find like some information that guides you. Either somebody publish a paper suggesting that there is a group of an adaptation, or you, know, you work with a local researcher who who worked with that group who says like there's an evidence of, of adaptation. Um, so what you want to do is you really find, you, you're going into a completely different country where you probably don't speak the language, which is some American company that is very scary. Obviously, I'm not going to you know fly into that population and start trying to recruit people for, for a genetic study. Um, so you have to find a local partner um, who ideally is either from the community or ha- has tight connections with the community. And sometimes by local partner, it's a number of different people. So we form a little consortium where we start having the, the first first discussions. Um, you know, would it be feasible to do a project? What are the you know, laws in the country regarding sample, sample import exports? So we're trying to kind of understand, would it even be you know, a possibility if we approached um, that, specific, that specific group? We try to learn as much as we can. So we gather information at a local level, talk to doctors, uh, try to confirm, you know, this, this potential evidence for that adaptation, try to design a how would we approach a you know, phenotyping strategy um, in that in the place. Um, we, we do two types of projects. So we sometimes do pilot projects versus like full scale projects. So a pilot project would be maybe if there's not enough evidence we to, in order to determine uh, if, this is something we want to invest a lot of uh, a lot of funds going forward. We do a much smaller project where we recruit maybe you know fifty to hundred individuals to kind of like build a relationship to to with the partner with the community. Um, so this is like the the initial kind of an exercise that we go through. And the next step will be really the key step will be the that will be the consultation. So um, we're trying to recruit participants from a specific from a specific group. We uh, need to know if they would be up for participating in, in a genomic study. And obviously that's another thing that we have to, and spe- especially now, because now we can't travel anywhere. So all of this now has to be done by our local partners. Um, so we have a very specific community engagement guidelines that we discuss with our partners. So they go in, they try to involve as many local entities as possible. And depending on the group they're working with, sometimes there is local representation that you can directly approach. Sometimes is you have to identify those groups. So we try to be, we have you know, our company, um, half of it is anthropologists, so they know exactly how this process should work. So they're just like, have you approached a youth group? Have you approached a women's group? Um, so that's what, what we do to 
discuss like this is the project, this is the risks associated with the project, this is the phenotyping we're doing. We're not doing anything invasive, everything uh, besides minimally invasive blood draws that, um, and you don't have to as a participant agree to that. You can give a, a saliva sample, um, but we would list those are the those are the measurements we would like to we'd like to collect. So see if people are open to this. Um, by having those discussions, also they sometimes. They, you know, those those groups know what what health issues uh, are relevant for them, so they really pretty dramatically change the scope of the project, which I think is a you know win win for everybody. Um, so they can bring up um, a number of novel things that we should be focusing on, and we do that. Um, we discuss things like data governance, like where is this data going? Who's going to be the custodian of the, the data going forward? Who's going to be custodian of the samples going forward? And if there is a community, the community seems to be okay with the project. We try to get something in writing saying that we've committed, <laughs> that we have performed a community uh, community engagement. And those are the people who we've spoken to. Those were their concerns. Um, we address them. Obviously, that's when we um, then have to apply for all the IRB approvals that are required by, by that country. They can be at a government level. They can be at a local level, sometimes both. So we go through this process that can be endless <laughs> can last can last a year and you have to go back and say like hey do you remember us we, we were here it's like when to start this project we've discussed but you know it is it is what it is um we uh we play by the rules and we don't go around any um any of the um any of the approvals we need to get and then the logistics start right so um what is actually beautiful about about this approach is that uh, recently, um, I mean, by recently, I mean within the last like five years, a ton of different um, portable phenotyping devices kind of popped up. I think people are in general more interested about their health. They're more interested in measuring this, that they're you know, different different uh, things related to their health at home. So there's just a lot of things that that we can do, even in in areas where uh, with without internet access, in areas with with unstable electricity, uh, with areas where we can find freezers. There's just a lot that we can do by by bringing those those portable devices. Um, so we would do a phenotyping and phenotyping campaign. Um, it can be either done with, a co with it can be long term with a collaboration with maybe lo a local hospital that kind of accepts like a slow constant stream of participants really depending who we're trying to recruit and and, and how efficiently was our local partner or it can just be uh, accelerated where you know we'd go in with a team for a, for a month uh, and that's the team is is all local because we have to you know, explain the consent form in the language that that all the individuals speak in. So we um, we have um, research assistants that are recruited that are recruited locally and trained. Uh, we send some of our team members if possible because again, due to the the pandemic, it. Um, it might not be possible for, for us to travel for, for a bit. <laughs> Let's see how that goes. Um, and um, the next step would be sequencing samples and transcribing the data into, um, into a, a form that's like easy for the data team. Um, so a lot of the, a lot of the questionnaires that we're, that we're asking individuals, a lot of the um, anthropometric measurements that are collected at the site are 
it's just going to be um, it's filling paper. It's actually like the most reliable way to to do uh, to do things in a in a. It's a pretty low pretty low tech, but uh, we've tried to come up with like different you know apps and tablets, and it's like sometimes we can charge it. You you know you pen and paper works works really great. Plus, you know, there's also other types of samples that we would be collecting. So maybe, you know, um, dried blood spots for blood metabolomics. So all of these go to corresponding facilities. We don't do any sequencing. We don't do any sample processing in-house. So all those samples would go uh, wherever, you know, in the world we we want them to go, depending on where we are. Um, we are uh, we're working with sequencing facilities in a number of different countries. Um, same for, for metabolomics. Uh, samples get processed, we get the data, and then the analysis starts. So that's what, um, and in terms of the analysis, that's what my, my co-founder, Stefan Castell, has been building over the last, um, I mean, since we started, since we started Variant, his his job was to really build out our um, analysis pipeline. So we're doing everything in the cloud. We're doing everything on AWS. Uh, we can uh, we can kind of deploy it to different countries, depending, like you know, if we need to, like if GDPR rules are um, are required to analyze the data, we can analyze it either you know in Florida or <laughs> in Sweden. Right, because sometimes the data really can't leave the country. Right, it has to be analyzed there. Sometimes the data can't leave the country. Yeah, so that this is why actually like the first the first uh, step of the project is to can we even get the data of the country? And like if we can't, is you know is AWS available? Because if if the answer to these questions is no, no matter how interesting the project, we kind of have to have to abandon it. And then you know ultimately what you what you have you have a number of associations and you determine if these are if these are interesting. And just like I don't I want to talk about this this forever because I feel like I've already. <laughs> I probably took too much time to like go. Into no, it's it's really helpful to have the overview. It really is. But at some point, you'll find that okay, here's you know a single genetic variant that seems to have a very strong effect that associates, you know, let's say with with um, end stage kidney disease or like a rapid progression to end stage kidney disease. We are expanding our team right now, so we have our head of uh, target validation would uh, take a look at. This one variant, or like a, just a list of findings that come out from a specific project, and prioritize them based on a, on a set of criteria. So, what you need to know is first of all, you know, is this a known variant? Is this a known gene? Like, are there therapeutics already existing in that area? How druggable it is? So that's just a series of questions. You know, is it an enzyme? Is it like a membrane receptor? Is it a structural protein? Is it Express and deliver, or is <laughs> expressed, you know, somewhere that's not as not as accessible. Uh, so based on that, that, that based on all of this, you, you just uh, as a, a variant can get a score, um, which and based on that score, we decide we decide is it a high priority thing to start validating, or is the low priorities to, to start validating. We obviously learn a ton more. You know, there's uh, we can know where this gene is expressed based on, for instance, like um, database like GTEx. So we just try to gather all this additional information and make a decision as a company, is this you know, worth validating? Um, so then what we would do is we have, uh, we have a lab um, internally. So some validation experiments we would do internally, some we would do in partnerships with CROs. Uh, so, you know, again, depending on the variant, it would be a little bit different, but it would be fairly standard things like a cell line. Let's, you know, let's knock it out. Let's overexpress it. Um, let's, you know, mouse, let's, 
let's knock it out, let's overexpress it, um, at all, always in a specific disease context. Um, yeah, and that's all, if you can, you know, replicate what you've seen in, in humans, that becomes a very high priority target. Um, and this is our um, next hire that is uh, coming soon, who is just somebody who's going to develop, um, help us develop therapeutics. So I don't want to talk about this too much too, but, but the next step would be, you know, just a typical drug discovery process, which is, which is long, which is you, depending if it's an antibody target, it's a small molecule target, you just uh, make a, a chemical compound or an antibody. Uh, and that's something we would do in um, to working together with, with companies that are experts in the, in the field and clinical trials. Yeah. That's really helpful. And I guess the reason, you know, the, the overarching reason why you go through such such enormous um, you know process and, and put so much into this is there's a lot of data that's shown that targets or drugs that are going after targets that have some genetic evidence are much more likely to ultimately make it successfully through clinical trials right how do you know what the what are the consensus figures on a drug that doesn't have genetic evidence versus one that does I think that they're twice as likely. Uh, so when you consider the, the cost of a clinical trial, it saves you a lot. And the time it takes to get to from point A to B to get an answer, uh, it saves you a ton of money and a ton of time. And is that essentially because is, is the hypothesis that drugs that don't have this genetic evidence, are they failing for efficacy reasons? So they don't actually, they don't, they don't work because actually the target wasn't a great target to begin with and the, the, the evidence wasn't as strong that it was the right target to begin with or or is it some other reason do, do you have any understanding of why that is actually I think well I'm not a drug discovery expert so I definitely don't want to um, I, I, what I might but my guess would be let me volunteer a guess is some of this would be would be safety um, you know what um, maybe a um, a finding that is um, or if you modify a um, a protein in a certain context, just in a context of, let's say, kidney or in a context of liver, that would work on in a dish. Uh, but when you do that in a human, you all of a sudden realize like, oh, like this is also, you know, this affects the heart or something like, like, like that. So, so safety would be would be one one thing would be, yeah, one, my guess. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I guess in, in your case, you know that there are there are hundreds to thousands to tens of thousands of humans that are walking around with this gene knocked out or altered in, in every cell of their body. So it's likely that knocking it out with a molecule or antibody would be safe. Yeah, that's that's very powerful. Yeah, that's very powerful. And also, you know, and but but you're also um, you're also right about, you know, there's a lot of genes there that are known to be potentially good uh, good targets, but nobody knows which context they should be a target. So if you don't have uh, so you don't have this connection between that gene and a specific disease, you're just like, well, it is, you know, a membrane receptor that we can activate or inhibit. Um, and we think, you know, there, and you can only guess that it might be relevant for, based on where it's expressed, it might be relevant for, for XYZ, but it's really hard to, to start from there. What's the biggest challenge for you all in the whole process that you described? So but before we get to the drug discovery stage, but from the, you know, finding, finding and engaging with potential groups through to data analysis, what's, what's the hardest part of the whole thing? I think one of the 
one of the hardest parts is that there is a lot of distrust that has been has been created in the field of you know genetic and and medical research. So um, obviously there's distrust towards a American company that is coming, you know, to gather genetic information, collect samples, and uh, you know, in many people's minds, just disappear with with this information and never come back because that's how. That's how it was done in the past. So overcoming this distrust and building building relationships that takes that takes a long time. Um, and there's you know certain geographies, there's certain groups we'd love to work with, but we are uh, not even attempting to approach them. Know that they're more distrustful or have been maybe more um, abused uh, by by research in the past. Uh, until we will be able to show, uh, you know, look, we've we've started a project. It was successful. We uh, we did what we promised with the data. Those are you know this is how the community benefited from from this and. Nobody's angry. So until we can tell the full story, that it will take a while because from the moment you start those conversations until you uh, have have findings, like it's still going to be a two three year process. So we're just not there yet to be able to tell the full story, tell some success stories. And I think once we once we tell those, it will be um, it will be much faster. So yeah, this distrust is is, is tough to um, to work with. Absolutely, and, and I think that's a great segue into the the discussion I wanted to have about your new benefit sharing model, which you all recently announced a, a couple of months ago, but I imagine it's been in the works for, for quite some time going through different ways in which you could do it, talking to partners. But um, I think you're really putting your money where your mouth is, so to speak, with uh, with trying to change this relationship between the American company that comes in and extracts data and, and uh, makes profit off of it and never comes back. And you all have a, a revenue sharing model now and and also i think beyond just the the money which is really the tip of the iceberg and part of it but it it, it sounds like you all are really engaging very deeply with the communities that you're working with which is more important you know i think i think the money if you could take you need both really i think to do it properly but um I think if you just went in with the money and didn't do the other things, it, it wouldn't be nearly as powerful. So I'd love to hear more about that, how it came about. Was it the plan from from the beginning for you all? It's not every pharma biotech company that does this. It's a uh, it's a new thing. Yes, um, I mean it was it was the that was the plan from from day one, and it was one of the reasons we decided this is the the time to start this company because we've seen just a ton of mistakes. There's been so many voices really raised by underrepresented uh, communities, vulnerable communities, and it's really well um, past time to to heed all of the voices um, to incorporate them, uh, and it's really time for a paradigm shift in in this area. Um, so we really wanted to um, to include this into our company's vision, into our company's structure from, from day one. Um, it obviously it's very it's very difficult. Uh, we are very lucky that we have a fantastic set of investors who are aligned on this with us also from, from day one because we, we told them the only way we can do this is if we do it ethically and if people who are willing to you know take a very risky step to share their genetic information their health information with a um, with a for-profit company they have to benefit from it they have to benefit i think in my opinion they have to benefit from this financially they have to get a piece of the pie um and the first investor who who decided to give us our um, our first tranche of money, uh, Josh Wolf from Lax Capital, extremely visionary guy, was just like, 
makes a ton of sense to me, go, go for it. Um, so we spent, you know, we, so, so that, but go for it is very simple because then the question is like, how do you do it? How do you ensure that people benefit? Because like benefit can be described in many different ways. So you know, in our opinion, it has to be financial benefit, but obviously um, there's other ways groups can benefit from, um, from engaging with, um, with research. So, we started by, you know, building a fairly unusual team for a, for a pharma company. So we have anthropologists on the team. So that was uh, that was one of our first hires, and and those are people who really know how to how to talk to how to talk to communities, how to engage them. We have um, created a fantastic independent ethics advisory board, which is also unheard of for uh, for a company, especially not at this early stage. So everything we've decided, everything we thought of, everything we've discussed was was presented to them and we could hear you know their opinions on this and they come they're very um they come from a number of interdisciplinary backgrounds so we have ethicists we have indigenous community members we have anthropologists social anthropologists on this board um and we have genetic uh, genetic counselors so um so trying to just hear as many voices as possible in um, in designing this, plus engaging with indigenous thought leaders who you know are out there and who have really great ideas, so you don't have to really reinvent um, reinvent the wheel. So what we ultimately came up with, um, and you know we had we had some idea of how can this work in practice, but um, me and my co-founder Stefano are also scientists, so we didn't really. It was it was really hard for us to set it up in practice because there's a lot of implications to decisions that you're making like that as a, you know, as a company. Um, so who really helped us finalize this is, is our CEO who, who we hired. Um, he joined Variant in March last year. His name is Andrew Farnham and he comes from the Gates Foundation. So he, st- he spent the last 10 years at the uh, Gates Foundation running their, um, their strategic investment fund that, that invests in biotech and, and healthcare sector and a number of countries uh, around the world. So he was generally aligned with, with our, he was, he was aligned with our mission from, from day one. And he comes from a business background, even though he has an undergrad in molecular biology, but then, you know, kind of, um, spent, spent many years in the investment world. So he really helped us uh, finalize the details of, of this program to make sure that um, it is scalable, that it's efficient, that it's you know, not slowing us down unnecessarily. Uh, but let me, okay, so this is what it is because it's a pretty long introduction. So <laughs> we have this two-pronged um, benefit um, sharing approach. So it, um, it, it's a set of short-term, what we refer to as short-term and long-term benefits. So short-term benefits are, it's fairly simple. It's whenever we start a project, this project comes with a certain budget, 10% of that project budget gets kind of like added on top. And this is the funds that the community that we're working with, um, and by community, you know, it's um, it can be a patient group. Um, it dep- depends on, on the project. Uh, they get to decide how this money is spent. Uh, within within reason, of course, it has to go towards you know, uh, things like education, healthcare. Uh, it has to go to things like sustainable development, local training. So, just ideally supporting uh, locally run NGOs that just like uh, improve outcomes for for that um, that specific group. And that one is fairly simple. And that one is just like if there is a project, this comes immediately. 
completing the project. This this is what you, what you get when you when you join, which we think is fair. Um, but we're, what we're really excited about is um, is our long term benefit sharing um, benefit sharing plan. So we have a pledge actually that's available on our website, and then we have a description of it on uh, on Medium if anybody wants to read more about this. But we pledge to share four percent of our revenue, uh, and that means income uh, before expenses as opposed to profit, which is uh, income after expenses. So four percent of our, our revenue every year uh, with our partner communities until um, the company is acquired or, or goes public, um, so completes an IPO. So at this point, uh, the partner communities will receive 4% of the company equity uh, equity value. So uh, we think it's a it's a groundbreaking number and nobody has come even close to, to this number in genomics, pharma, biotech, um, as, as far as we, we are aware. How did you arrive on that 4% number? Yeah, so that, that this is also where, where Andrew came in because we're just like, how do you how do you know what what is you know what makes sense, what's fair? Yeah, what's fair? What's fair and what's not going to, to kill the company because if it's too little, it's not fair. If it's too much, we will die as a company and then everybody loses. So um so Andrews put a lot of lot of thought into this and what um and you know it's very difficult to really put a concrete like dollar amount value on the data that we collect, but we um settled on on four percent because that's the that's the average amount of royalties that American universities get uh, from companies in exchange for for early technology. So we think about this as an early technology. You know, we're working with with a specific group. There's no guarantee of findings. There is a chance we might find something interesting. We don't really. You haven't done enough projects to be able to tell you like out of ten projects, you know, we find in a candidate in one or in five. Um, I, I can't really tell you that that yet, um, but uh, probably it will be closer to to one rather than than five in terms of like a successful successful drug. Yeah, these are early early and high risk, right? And take a long time and and often a lot of money to figure out whether whether it will work or not. Yeah. What, what is very important to us is that this 4% is not in any way tied to findings. So um, this is why a lot of groups asked us, if you find something in our genome, we want we want something out of that. But this is not really how it works. Is anybody, you know, everybody who participates in the study, it's they kind of it's the same risk for them. So everybody should be really compensated equally. So this is across the board with with all the projects that we have been involved with. For that long term benefit, is it shared back all the way with the individuals, or is it with um, with a patient group or, or community group? And did you all have a discussion? Because I can see pros and cons with both approaches, and in particular, down to the individual is is uh, I would imagine really difficult to implement in practice. Um, but yeah, I'm interested in how you all talked through that and what you came up with. We had a lot of discussions about this, and you're right. Like individual, that would be very very difficult in practice. It's going to be also many years down the line, so maybe it would be hard to re-identify re them. Plus um, something that, you know, when we talk to our ethics board, what, what they were saying um, is if you share, and that's what a lot of those, a lot of the groups actually that we talk to say is if somebody's sharing their genetic information with us, they're not only sharing their private genetic information, but they're also sharing information about, you know, their family members, they're sharing information about the community as a whole. So they shouldn't be the ones receiving the benefit. It should be the community uh, as a whole receiving receiving the benefits. So we are so what what we're doing is we are um 
for in in consultations with the communities that we that we work with at a very early stage so from the onset of the project we start having those conversations via our partners what are the areas of the most interest of having those benefits uh, go towards that's both in terms of in terms of short term benefits and long term benefits but the but in general the idea is to support uh, locally run um, NGOs that again improve outcomes for the for the community we as a company have a have a way to to veto something um just you know ensure that money doesn't maybe end up in somebody's pocket accidentally so we definitely are going to do um a lot of um a lot of just background checks on what those what those um ngos are and that will be done by a subcommittee of the board that will include um, representatives from the groups we've been working with, that will include, uh, again, indigenous thought leaders and people who have been working in that space to help us um, pick the right groups to to work with. Um, but from very early conversations, um, the long-term benefits is it's much more it's much more vague. It's much easier for people to to come kind of come up with something that works for them short term. And those are extremely interesting conversations. So, um, and some in a few places, it's water purification systems for for the for the locations we're working with. Obviously, access to clean water is um, is is an issue still in in many parts of the world. Um, we have been asked to support legal representation for land for defending land rights, which I think is a, is a fantastic and very worthy uh, very worthy cause um, and we also support training so for instance we have supported the sync consortium I don't I don't know if you've heard uh, heard about them but it's a it's a program for uh, indigenous um, indigenous people in genomics and training indigenous communities in genomics it operates in four different countries uh, in the US Canada Australia and New Zealand and we've supported the first uh, entirely indigenous genomic conference in in New Zealand um, so so I think initiatives like that are extremely worthy to, to spend the benefits towards. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and we're running up against time here. I can't believe the hour has flown by so quickly. I was hoping to just ask one last question circling back to, to you, actually. This is this is the second company that you founded, um, co-founded. So the first one you co-founded with your um, postdoctoral supervisor, Joe Pickrell, who was a previous guest on the podcast, Jen Cove. Um, I was just wondering what lessons you took from what seems to be a, a raging success. Genkov is um, is off to the races and doing amazing work. Um, what lessons did you take from that that you bring into Variant Bio? And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about your experience at, at Genkov in general. Yeah, um, I mean, I guess the most important lesson was I've learned that I just love having my own company, the freedom of this and the fact that you can just like move very fast and work with with incredible people. Working with Joe and Tomas was some of the was a, some of the best times of my of my life. They're both incredibly smart. So um, so this is that's one. Uh, but you know, Jenkov also made me realize how powerful the technology that we've built is, how powerful low-pass sequencing is when used for uh, for discovery. Um, so I think for me, um, it was just taking another step. So Jenkov built an, an incredible tool, and I decided like I really want to, I really want to use that tool. So by I'm a, I'm not a computational biologist by training. I'm I'm a molecular biologist, so it kind of makes sense for me to to use the tool to identify novel novel variants to um, to push them further. So I think it was 
a natural step for me to take to to start working with what what we've developed at GenCove. Absolutely. Well, Kaya, thank you so much for taking the time to to sit down with me and and have this conversation. Uh, no, thank you so much for the for the invitation. It was it was a pleasure. Great, and thank you all for taking the time to listen, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Genetics Podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, we'd really appreciate if you left us a review on your favorite podcast player, or even better, you can tell a friend who you think might like it too. As always, you can reach us anytime at podcast at sonogenetics.com. We really love to hear from you all about any feedback you have, guests you'd like to hear from, or topics that you'd like to see us cover in the future. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next time.